Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko. A graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law, she's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com, for more. A trigger warning. This episode includes discussion of multiple miscarriages and brief mention of suicidal ideation. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Alicia Young. You may know her from her blog, APY blog, um, and from her amazing beauty line. She is an entrepreneur. She also lives with multiple chronic illnesses and is also a special needs mom. Um, and she's going to tell us all about it. So Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is such it. it is such an honor and such a pleasure to have you on the show today. And we were connected through Lorna, um, System of Curves. Um, and I'm just so glad that we were able to to get together and and chat. There's so much rich history in your medical file for you to share with us today. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. So um, let's start from the very beginning. This is where I always love to kick things off. Can you tell us when and how you first realized that your health was going a little funky and what steps you've since taken to control it? Um, I think things didn't really um, come into play for me until after my last uh, pregnancy, which is in 2016. Um, I did have a diagnosis of sleep apnea since 2010, but you know, besides that, I felt what I thought was generally healthy and normal. Um, But in 2016, during my pregnancy, um, I started having pain in the hip and lower back that I thought was just pregnancy, but it wasn't. That ended up being osteoarthritis. And then shortly after delivering in 2016 um, is when the thyroid issue came to the forefront. Um, And it was simply because a goiter had started growing in my neck. Um, Prior to that, um, I didn't have any indication or anything that I thought was an indication that I had thyroid disease until that happened. Um, and then it was like the bottom fell out. <laughs> Absolutely. And because you had the goiter, you had to have your thyroid removed, right? Yes, 
Absolutely. Yeah. So it's really interesting because, I mean, you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit prior to starting this interview. And um, there's a lot of history here in your health that actually ends up revolving around your pregnancies. You've got three kids mm-hmm. um, and you've had some miscarriages in between these births. And it seems like actually some of those miscarriages could have been avoided and may have occurred because of underlying symptoms that were never tested for, right? Right, right. Um, So yeah, as I was, you know, I was filling you in before, I've suffered a total of eight miscarriages. um, Which is, that's a high number for anyone. Yeah. Is I, I'm very fertile, believe it or not. It's amazing. Um, (laughs) I, I literally, I gave birth, I had my first child at 18. Um, and in between that and my son, who is, um, he came five years after her, um, there were like two to three miscarriages. Now, the interesting thing about that is that for the most part, most of those pregnancies ended really early. So anywhere between the four and eight week mark. Um, but I had two that went further than that and they both ended around the 16 week mark, which is four months. Um, that's, that's a pretty far way in. For it is. People. And that was yeah. tough because that was like, I got to see baby moving and kicking and was just beginning to feel those flutters. So it was a very tangible pregnancy. Um, and I had one blighted ovum at some point. So that is when the fetus does not fully develop, but the sac does. Um, and throughout all of those losses, and I also want to mention when I was pregnant with my middle child, my son, who is 11, I miscarried his twin at nine weeks of pregnancy. He survived. Wow. And then the very last miscarriage that I had um, before my last son, that was twins. And when I first moved down to Georgia, I ended up in the hospital like my first day here and had lost one at seven weeks. And that baby continued to grow until 16 weeks. And then she died. Um, wow. So, so and, and yet, despite the fact that in your file, there was a history of miscarriages <laughs> and like late term miscarriages. Yeah. Nobody ever yeah. flagged this as an issue. No. So um, I got fortunate unfortunately at the wrong time. So like right before I was getting ready to move from Philadelphia to Georgia, I found out I was pregnant. Um, and I got, and this was with your second son, right? Um, yes, my second son, my third and last baby. So before he came, this was the pregnancy right before we, um, I found out right before we were moving in 2014. So I got lucky enough to have a doctor who flagged me as high risk and was like, okay, well, we're going to need to, you know, run some tests and get you into an ultrasound as soon as possible um, so we can see how things look. But in that process, because that was June, we moved in July. So there was Which that means there's time. a change in insurance, like you're right. moving to a change different state. Insurance, there was no, you know, I had to leave. You know, we were moving down south. So I hadn't even established my footing in Georgia. And I was like going into the emergency room like my first night here. Um, I ended up at a DeKalb Medical Hospital. Um, and the staff that was really kind, really caring, you know, they chartered everything, but it's the emergency room. So you're not really building a rapport with anybody. You're just there to make sure like, cause one of the things they told me like, is if you're miscarrying, there's nothing we can do about it. Like you just have to put your feet up and let this happen. Um, that's I, hard enough news to it swallow is. when you're dealing with a late term miscarriage. And I was like losing. And I, at that point I wasn't late term yet. I was only seven weeks at that point. So when I got there and they did the ultrasound, 
at first they didn't see the other baby. They're just like, okay, well, we can see where there was a baby. So we know you've lost a child. And then she went looking and said, oh, we have another one. And it seems to be doing well. So she sent me home. I was on bed rest for a few weeks. Um, at 11 weeks, I came off of bed rest. So there was about three weeks of bed rest. Um, I had gone to a follow-up. I had finally had an OBGYN. Went, ultrasound was beautiful. She was moving. She was kicking. She looked healthy and thriving. Her rate was normal. When I was going back for my 16-week mark is when I found out that she had also passed. Um, and, but there was no bleeding. There was no actual miscarriage. So there was no indication. There was no way for me to know that, you know, she wasn't viable anymore. That was really tough because I was going in for ultrasound, but it was almost like something in my spirit was really heavy that day. And I remember calling my husband because he was still in Philly at the time from the waiting room. Like, I'm really worried about this ultrasound. And he was just like, relax, you know, it's going to be okay. Well, also at that point, you'd been through enough of this that like, of course you already had like a little PTSD associated with absolutely. Yeah. And there, you know, I couldn't relax. And when he went to do the ultrasound and I I knew, I knew immediately because he was searching way too hard to find a heartbeat when, and I'm not sure if you've ever seen an ultrasound, but once a baby's of a size, like you can see the baby on the string, yeah. a heart moving and things like that. So when I knew like once I didn't hear it right away, you know, I knew what was coming. I knew what he was going to tell me. And even in that moment, like I was not ready to receive that information. And then I had gone home and I didn't get scheduled for surgery until about three days later because they said, we want to see if your body will spontaneously expel this. Yeah. Massively pass it. Yeah. Yeah. I had to go in and be induced and that was really tough. Yeah, because you're actually going through labor to give birth to a child that you can't raise. I can't bring home. Um, And then in that process, they ended up having to put me under to surgically remove her because um, of all the scar tissue that I had from previous C-sections. So that was really devastating. And it was... This is like, let's just circle back to this whole C-section thing. Like we know that C-sections are overused in the States. There are statistics up the wazoo about this. But you're someone, it seems like, who had been given so many C-sections that you now had scar tissue that required a C-section. So I had two C-sections at that point. Um, And my first was at 18. And part of the problem that I think was, um, I was always fat. You know what I mean? Like different degrees of fat, but I've always been fat my entire life. And even though at 18, I wasn't as the size I am now, I was still viewed as fat to the medical system. So instead of allowing me to labor naturally the way that they would a smaller woman, because let's be real, I've had many discussions with fat women who have been pregnant, and this is their experience, that we have to fight harder to be treated normally when it comes to pregnancy. Not even taking into account in this part of the discussion, the fact that you're also a woman of color in a maternity ward, like, which we also know puts you at a disadvantage. So you're a fat woman of color. Yes. And there was like, surprise, surprise, you're being mistreated. Well, first of all, when I was in labor with my first child, my mom, you know, I told my mom what I was feeling. She took me to the um, labor and delivery. They told me I wasn't in labor. They sent me home. So I labored at home for three days you know, without any pain meds because they kept sending me home. So I Is this part of the like black women have a higher pain tolerance BS? More or less, this young black girl is being a hypochondriac because she's a teenager. So the problem real is- fun. That's real fun. Thanks. Thanks, medical system for that. <laughs> the equipment that they had to monitor contractions 
wasn't viable for my girth. I had a belly and I, you know, I was fat. This was Yale, by the way, people. This is prestigious Yale University Hospital. And um, so by the third day, when they go to do my ultrasound and she's looking, and now mind you, this is after being told by a doctor that um, I was too big for my pregnancy and my mom needed to watch what I was eating because I was gaining too much weight. And teenagers usually right. have underweight babies. And I'm like, well, no, what? Okay. So when they do my ultrasound, the doctor who was on, on staff this particular time, she's looking, she's like, you look like you're losing amniotic fluid. Now, I didn't know that your water doesn't break the way that it does on TV. Your water can break and leak for days. So that's what it had been doing for three days. So she's looking and she's like, we're going to probably induce you in the morning. Because at this point, I was like two weeks overdue, first of all. And she's like, and it doesn't look like baby has much room to move around. So we're going to admit you tonight and, you know, put some gel on your cervix to help soften your cervix. Then she said, did anybody take a look at you internally. And I said, no. And she's like, well, I'm going to check to see if you're dilated. I was four and a half centimeters dilated, which means I was in active labor. So she's like, oh no, you're in labor. Like we have to admit you. It took them three days to figure out to even internally check me or figure out a way to monitor my contractions. But here's where it gets. But here, quick question. Out of curiosity, was that the first female doctor you came across in that experience too? No. Okay, so that had nothing to do nope. with it. it. Had nothing to do with it. Um, now, it was just internalized fat phobia and phobia, racism. Yes, absolutely, right. absolutely. And even my level of my threshold of pain was dismissed. So I'm telling them like these contractions hurt, and they're telling me, "Well, they're not showing up on the chart." So what they ended up doing is because they didn't believe that I was really contracting the way I said that it was, they gave me something called pitocin, which is meant to increase contractions. So now you have me hooked into an IV, which means I can't walk around like I should be to help push. Yeah, to help get the baby out. Yeah. No, now I'm laid up in a bed Mm. to have this IV running with these monitors strapped to me because now you want to give me this drug. I had a a staff change and another nurse came in and she's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. She's like, I have to look at something. So she, I don't know what she did. She took some wires and she put them inside of me. Then you could see my contractions jumping off the chart. And she's like, oh, my God, like, these are really strong contractions. Like, how long has this been doing this? I'm like, since before the Pitocin. For now, three days, so, thank you. <laughs> now the Pitocin's making it worse. Yeah. Now they're coming closer and closer together. Um, but it was like, it never dawned on anybody that I could be laboring in my back. So we need mm. to turn this monitor around to your back, maybe, or even internally monitor you, which was obviously an option. It it wasn't until the baby's heart rate started to be all wonky, but now you've introduced a drug into my system. And in the meantime, I told them I want an epidural. They gave it to me. I told the doctor this, I still feel this. And they're like, oh, this is pressure. That's not pain. No, I know pressure. They and told like, you it was pressure and not pain while you were yeah. in labor? Yes. No, that is... Like I, I, like, I actually can't even comprehend yes. that you would say and that to like, a woman oh, giving birth. They're like, stop being silly. Like, this is just pressure. Oh, and I'm telling the anesthesiologist, I'm telling the anesthesiologist, my right leg is numb. So whatever you did, didn't numb the contractions. You numbed my right leg. Yeah. He's like, no, 
you don't, you're not the doctor. I've got this. And like, wow. I'm just like blown away. And my mom's trying to keep me calm. And my mom is not very, she does not engage with people. Like she's not confrontational. So she's just trying to get me to shut up. Cause I'm like cussing and carrying on at this point. And I'm like screaming. You're from at Connecticut. Me. You take no prisoners. <laughs> like, I'm, like, I'm like, I can't take this. So at the point they're coming in and they're like, well, we need to do an emergency C-section. I did not understand the implications of a C-section. I just knew at this point I've been in labor for like 82 hours. I want this baby out of me. I'm in pain. I'm screaming. And they're like, sign this paperwork. I'm not reading this paperwork. I'm just Hell like. Hell no. Yeah, of course. Out. I ended up, you know, I delivered her. She was nine pounds. <laughs> oh, that's a big baby. Now. After a doctor told me, you will have an underweight baby because you're a teenager. Yeah. Um, he did, however, come into my, my room to apologize to me a couple of days later to tell me. So I was appreciative of that. Mm-hmm. But even throughout my whole entire care afterwards, I ended back up in the hospital about a week later with an infection. Never mind the yeah. fact that I'm in so much pain. Like I can't get up. I can't move. I can't. And I'm telling the doctors, I'm like, she's I had to take her to the emergency room at some point because she wasn't passing urine and I told them I'm not producing milk oh you don't know what you're talking about she could survive off colostrum for this amount of time it's a week later and I'm still not producing milk which mm. I didn't know that had anything to do with your thyroid um but well this was I'm the not- beginning of I mean like I guess this is the beginning of now this looking back beginning. through the lens of your diagnoses yeah. and and like having had Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism, you're able to look back now and go, oh, this was oh my God. To all yes. these issues. I end up back in the hospital with an infection. And of, of course, I'm in a lot of pain and I'm telling the doctors and they're just like, oh, you're being silly. So they take, <laughs> they take my temperature. I have like, my temperature is like 104.5. Like, Excuse me? So then they're like, they're trying not to panic and they're telling my mom, we're going to admit her or whatever. And my mom's like, okay. And she's like, she's going to be admitted overnight. So my mom has to take care of the baby. So now while I'm in the midst of being checked out, my milk decides to come in, which I was really upset about because at that point they're pumping me full of drugs and I can't feed the baby that. Um, So during this process, I almost died. They had to resuscitate me. I have fluid in my lungs. All this stuff is happening. No one ever gave me a clear answer as to what was wrong with me. So for those who are tuning in, in case you're wondering why the maternal death rate among black women is so high high in the U.S., this is why. I mean, it, it shocks me that I have to have discussions like this where I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm gasping. I can't believe it. And like, I'm someone who hears stories about medical malpractice all day, you know, (laughs) but I'm still sitting here shocked. Um, and I mean, I know your experience was even more shocking, you know, and it's, it was, what's the most upsetting is that this is an everyday occurrence, that this is not an uncommon story. And that's unbelievable. What was more frustrating was because I was technically 18. So at some point I was out, I was unconscious and my mom was trying to get information. They wouldn't give it to her because I was an adult. So do you know that by the time they released me, you know, they gave me antibiotics and all this other stuff. They told me I had an infection. They never talked to me about, you know, what it really meant. And I wasn't at an age where I was like really thinking to ask those questions. So it wasn't until five years later when I was 23 and I was having my second child and I was having a scheduled C-section now, 
And I was living in Philly by this point, and they're like, we need to get your records from Yale so we know what you know we're up against. When I got those records, I learned that they had left placenta in utero, and that is why I had that infection. It is why I ended up back in the hospital. And, and they never told you? They never told me, and they performed a DNC on me while I was unconscious because they had to get the placenta out. And I didn't know that. That's so, a you know, practice suit. Through all the years. You told that information? I mean, so technically when I consulted with an attorney, because you know I did, yeah, I good. just hit my statute of limitations. Of course. So I was really pissed about that. But more so thinking to myself, so within the last five years, when I'm going to the doctors and they're asking my history, I can't tell you, yes, I've had a DNC. So that that also predisposes to scar tissue, which did not make it easier, which also weakens the uterine walls and all sorts of things that can complicate your pregnancies down the line. I didn't know this. I had of course no- not. And how would you even have known when you were 18, even if they told you? Right. That wouldn't, because they wouldn't tell my mom what was going on. Like it wasn't even as if she could ask me, Hey, we should wake up. I need to, because at the time I didn't have a power of attorney. I didn't have, you know, any of those things in place because I was living at home. My mom was a teenager and I had just turned mm-hmm. 18 and then gave birth. So that really probably was the start of a lot of things. And I just didn't know, you know, life goes on. Um, I did. I definitely had more painful periods afterwards and things like that. There was a time my healing took longer. Um, and you've even said that there were like some overlaps in your symptoms with what yeah. goes through with PCOS, but yes. you don't have PCOS. You were never diagnosed. No, never, never had. So I know for, you know, for a fact, I did have, I was checked for PCOS because there were times I would say things to my doctor and they, it was like, well, because of your weight, you're probably, you've probably got PCOS. That's how I ever first heard that. Wow. Let's not and even ask you, let's just presume because you're fat. Mm-hmm. And diabetes. Yeah, well, when diabetes. I, yeah, that's the, one of those ones. I, it's like, oh, you're fat. You probably have it, right? Yeah. A couple of years after I had had my son and I was putting on all this weight, it was like a year later I got married after I had my son. And like I had put on a lot of weight, like a lot of weight in a short amount of time. During that time, there was no discussion of, you know, you might have thyroid disease or anything. They literally tested me for diabetes like 30 times because they just could not believe could not believe I didn't have it. Like they unbelievable to me that they never started checking your hormones at that point. Mm -mm. Never. I I can't remember even having a conversation with a doctor except for this one good doctor that I had. Then when my insurance changed, she wasn't my doctor anymore. The discussion of hormones literally did not come up until after my last birth in 2016 with my final child. And that was only because I had a goiter growing. And the way my primary care physician treated that, like when I told her, I've got this lump in my throat, I feel like I got food stick in my throat. She literally told me, Mrs. Jean, you've, you've put on a lot of weight. This is probably fat deposits because fat has, what? when you gain, yes, this is what her explanation was. I got lucky because her medical assistant, I used to work for the state, of Georgia, her medical assistant had a problem that I helped her with. And so her medical assistant was like, listen, I'm just going to write you a referral. And she did the same thing for my hip because 
my doctor was just like, oh, you'll be fine. Um, you just need to lose some weight. Even though I'm telling her, like, walking is becoming increasingly harder. And I don't think this is weight really, really. Like, I well, and this is also something that you mentioned before we hit record, too, that, like, <laughs> with all of these varying symptoms that you had, the doctors kept saying it's because you're fat, it's because you're fat, it's because you're fat, or ignoring it because you're black, because you're black, because you're black. And it's very interesting to me that you had to go through that process when there was never a thought about what the underlying symptoms were. Like maybe, maybe I'm fat because of something else, you know, like, and, and that it's taken, it took that long to actually get this all rolling. When I, when I got my endocrinologist, like the first time I even knew that I had to see an endocrinologist, when they took my history um, and they, they, they were digging and they were like, you know, asking questions about my sleep, asking questions about depression, asking questions about weight gain, weight loss over the years. As I'm telling the endocrinologist this, she's looking at me in disbelief because she's just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, run that back. As I'm telling her, like, yeah, I got diagnosed with depression when I was nine and I've been dealing with depression my entire life, um, which is a common symptom of hypothyroidism. Um, I go through flares of having really dry skin. I started losing hair, like in my eyelashes and my eyebrows. I've told doctors this, or even the fact that I'm extremely tired all the time. Well, you have sleep apnea. Yeah, but I sleep with my CPAP. And I know my air quality is good. I know my seal is good and all that stuff. Um, my oxygen levels are good. So I don't think that that's what that is. There were so many red flags, but the biggest one to me was, you know, I gained 100 pounds in six months and lost 100 pounds in six months, which I think we would all love to lose 100 pounds in six months. But that's yeah. not- <laughs> yeah. It wasn't normal. And they, I remember them just being like, well, you know, we tested you for diabetes. You don't have it. So it's not it the was, answer then. So test for something else. It was like they were so happy that I had lost it, that it was good enough for them. Like, well, now you've reduced your risk of high blood pressure and this and that. And, you know, but I'm like, this doesn't feel right, you know, and I never. And it's not like if you lose 100 pounds in six months, that's not OK. Like, that's not a, not a good okay. way to it's lose weight. not normal. And no. I'm like, all of these things were going on and um, I was having inflammation in my joints, too. But they always attributed that to my weight. Didn't realize that hypothyroidism comes with its own form of arthritis. So all these things were going on and it took to almost like now it has to be extreme. Like now I have to have my thyroid removed because now it's so large that it's cutting off my air flow. And now I have to have hip replacement because I didn't even know I had, you know, hip dysplasia, which is what caused my arthritis. And all of these delays, nobody ever looked. I could, I go to the doctors, they ask questions, you give them answers and it's like, Okay. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that you also developed Asherman syndrome as a result yes. of all of the scar tissue yes. from the C-sections that you didn't need. And to it's like, no one's looking at this picture as, you know, a whole, they're treating everything separately. And that's the most frustrating thing. You have a cardiologist, you have an endocrinologist, you have a primary care. You and you're a- having changes of insurance in the midst of it. But no one's talking to each other. I think the, the best thing that ever worked for me is being in Kaiser's healthcare system. But I got really lucky with the doctors that I had while I was at Kaiser, but they also read my charts before they made decisions. So when things would happen, they would be like, okay, well, let me look in your chart. You were just here. And they could see 
you know, blood work. And they would take those things into account and they didn't make decisions without talking to each other. So I was really grateful for that. So between my OBGYN and my endocrinologist and my primary care, they would always talk to each other. Like, yeah, we just had Ms. Young here for this, this, and that, and the third, let's compare notes. Do you think that's one of the benefits of going to doctors within one healthcare system, like yes. whether it's Kaiser or Yale or absolutely you know, hospital it is if all your doctors are under one roof, there's it more of a they'll discuss things. If they have access to that system. Because mm-hmm. even with I have Blue Cross now, um, and Emory Hospital and the Cap Hospital, they merge down here in Georgia. Um, so now everything's housed under one thing. So now everybody has access. It's getting those doctors to pay attention. If that's the problem. It's, Do you think it's also an issue that the doctors are overworked though? You know, like we know that, that doctors have, you know, 10 to 15 minutes with each patient when they get to see them. So the fact that they're expected to see so many patients in such short periods of time. They're not. Well, here's, here's my problem with that. Doctors are not required to see that many patients. They do it for money. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Cause if clapping, I'm never, clapping over here. <laughs> it's, a, I mean, it's a, it's a for-profit healthcare system. So if you think about the fact that we get penalized, right? If we're 15 to 20 minutes late and we may not only get penalized, but we may get rescheduled, but how long does it take our doctor to actually arrive into the examination room? We see everybody else, the medical assistant, takes your blood pressure, does this, does that, draws your labs, da, 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 da. or you may even get sent to the lab. You might even get your labs done there. Okay, now we're going to send you down here. So you're, you've done all these questionnaires with whomever has checked you in. You see your doctor for five to ten minutes tops. They poke you, they prod you, and, and then they're just reading whatever the medical assistant wrote down or the nurse wrote down. And it's like, okay, we'll see you back here and such and such. But, like, I'm trying to talk to you, and you're rushing me out for the next patient because, A, you were late coming into this appointment, but you're going to get your money, aren't you? It's not fair. Mm-hmm. I, like if you know that you, I think that you need to see your patients and let your patients talk. So that means don't try to create back-to-back appointments. Leave that gap. Have you found doctors now, like after going through all of this and becoming more aware of your own medical history and like understanding the nuances of your body and getting a handle on your own medical chart? Have you now found a team that makes the time for you and that really listens and communicates? Here's the unfortunate thing. I did through Kaiser. um, And that was a beautiful thing. And it was probably my most fulfilling experience in the healthcare system. But what happened was I ended up having to come out of work for my hip. So now I, you know, my insurance was through my job. Um, I had a great job. I worked for the state. They did pay for my insurance up to six months after I was out of work, but then I had to come off of it. Now I could have paid for it out of pocket through Clover, but that's really expensive. So we're on my husband's insurance. And also you actually had to stop working because of your osteoarthritis. So you end up with this osteoarthritis diagnosis far later than you should have received it. Um, you know, this is something that, as you were mentioning, can be comorbid with hypothyroidism. And you've had a hip replacement. So No, I have not had my hip replacement yet. Uh, I'm not allowed because wow. I'm fat. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah Are you for real? Yes. So at the time they realized, after they did my x-ray, <laughs> no, this is dormant, the, the doctors were like, all right, so your hip is as bad as an 80-year-old woman's. And they're Hi, like, that's an indication something's wrong. And they're like, so you need to have hip replacement. 
but you weigh too much. So what do they want to do? Give you a gastric bypass? And yes, like, that wow. is the process that I'm in right now. Literally. So they're, re- they're requiring you to get a gastric sleeve in order to get a new hip. Yes. Wow. Because here's the thing. And this is their argument. If they replace my hip at this weight, the wear and tear will be quicker than for someone who's of a smaller size, which means I'll need surgery sooner. Coupled with the fact that I am young or I'm considered young, I'm 35. Um, they usually give hip replacements to people who are older, who are like 50 to 60 years old. And by the time they need another hip replacement, they'll be in their 70s or close to their deathbed. So the the reality is they probably won't need that second surgery versus somebody. It's less of a drain on the system. There it goes. So somebody like me at my age, I'll be due to have one within 10 to 15 years and they'll have to do it. That the hardware or whatever they um, put into your body will wear down faster with my weight. And also they're concerned about um, healing time because of my size and my inability to do physical therapy. Never mind the fact that I exercise at least five times a week and was very active before my hips started crashing on me. So no, I'm literally now in the process of weight loss surgery program. How do you Um, feel about that? Very conflicted. Very conflicting. I've been very honest about my journey through my on my blog and on my social media because um, it's not because my you finally you you recently got to a place where you're really good with being who you are, right? And now you're being told it's still not good enough. And I think the most painful thing to all of this is people don't understand how hard it is to lose weight with hypothyroidism. Thank um, you. I had to really learn a new way of doing things eating. Um, and there are times that if your medication is not where it needs to be, your metabolism is going to be slowed down and I could eat a a cookie and it'll be five pounds and it's not going anywhere. Yeah. I feel you. It's been very hard because I'm not really for surgery. Um, yeah, because it seems an unnecessary additional surgery and you have scar tissue issues and like it's a lot of extra stuff, extra hoops you have to jump through that. Right. Wow. What I will say is I, I do like the team that I'm working with because I have a nutritionist because I'm required by my insurance to do six supervised visits with a nutritionist. A, she's been really considerate of my hypothyroidism. So even learning how to eat for that to help me lose weight along the way, she's been really good with. She's also not, um, she's not numbers driven. So that's where her and my surgeon are kind of different. Like my surgeon's like, you need to be this BMI in order to be eligible for this program. My nutritionist is just like, I need your body to feel good. I need for what you are eating to make you feel good. I don't want you to really be counting calories. What I want you to do is just think about how you're eating. Are well, she doesn't want to give you an eating disorder as right. a result of and this program. And I've had my, my struggles with eating disorders. So she's of just course, like, because you're a fat woman living in this world. Like, how could you oh, not? So she's just like, she's been really good with me and, and taking into consideration I'm a person with anxiety and depression. Now my surgeon, she's, I like her too, because one of the things when you are my size, because in full disclosure, I weigh about 450 pounds. It's been fluctuating a lot within the last month or so, because I got down to like 445 and then gained some and lost it. So, it's But been, also you're tall. 
So you carry it what easily, <laughs> like, you know, it's not like you're like five foot two and weigh four. No, I'm not. Now. I'm five, eight and a half. And um, yeah. one of the things though, is at this size, the doctors are terrified of me dying. And that's just, that's statistics. That's why they feel that way. So there is a lot of pressure when they talk to me, but I will say when you are my size, they will typically push you to have the bypass. The surgeon I met with, she said, I want to know what surgery you want and why you want it and how we can accommodate you. I told her the only surgery I would agree to is the sleeve because it's the least invasive one. Um, and it doesn't require any rerouting of my plumbing. That's what I like to call it. Because some of these surgeries, like the Dewey Dental Switch, the um, gastric bypass, they have higher mortality rates. And they also have higher complication rates. And this um, is where people are literally dying to be thin. To be thin. Um, I'm like, I get needing to have to lose the weight to get this, the hip replacement. They're not going to let me do it otherwise. Um, but if I'm going to do it, I want to do it on my terms. And before I rushed into even considering it, I needed to see if I could lose weight on my own. So, so far I've been able to lose about 50 pounds on my own because what people don't know is I was at 490 something, um, probably about last September. So getting the right thyroid medication was part of that. that That's That's the biggest part of it. And my God, like I went through so much with an endocrinologist trying to get the proper drug. Um, so when my surgeon looked at my history, she said, normally we wouldn't allow for this, but she's like, I think you would be a good candidate because with the sleeve, it's still a lot of you having to control what you do. Whereas bypass, you are literally dealing with something called malabsorption where you can't gain weight no matter what you eat because your body physically And you can't get nourishment from the good stuff you're eating either. And to me, the scary thing about that is I'll lose the weight, but will I really be healthy? Thank you. So at least with the sleeve, you know, it's just making my stomach smaller, which will limit how I guess hungry. When they do that, it cuts out something that secretes a hormone in your stomach that gives you hunger pains. So it limits people's ability to like snack and all that stuff. But that only lasts for like a year. So you have to do that work within the year to help yourself along the way. Yeah, because Um, aren't you also then at risk for basically starving yourself? Like if you're not feeling hunger pains and you forget to eat because you're not, your body's not telling you to eat. In the support group I'm in, the women and the men who have been there have said some of them, and it affects everybody differently. Um, But some people have to set alarms so that they can remember to eat. Um, and the amount of food that you can eat with a sleeve is crazy. The best way to describe it is your stomach is the size of like a golf ball. Um, but so it's like a few things. There's not much you can do. Right. So you're literally eating like a spoonful of food at a time and you can't drink fluids and eat food simultaneously. There has to be space in between because fluid takes up space. You have to sip your water. So this is like, I mean, already this to me sounds like a disordered relationship with food that like you're being forced to develop because of weight loss surgery in order to just get the hip you need where the medical system could also equally be like, cool, we'll give you a hip. Now we'll give you another one in 15 years. But they're and not, they're not like, open to it's that. not like this is free. I'm paying for it. You know? No, yeah, exactly. And I think what's more painful is not only will I have to pay out of pocket, you know, not out of pocket, but it's still a good chunk because insurance is a scam and we all know that. Thank um, you. I'll have to pay for 
you know, weight loss surgery and turn right back around and pay for a hip replacement. It's two surgeries. Um, so that's why I, you know, my weight loss journey for me is I'm trying to get the most weight off because if I hit my peak weight before surgery comes, I'm going to go get my hip done before I ever get weight loss surgery. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they told me my BMI has to be to a certain number to get hip replacement. I'm like, if I hit that BMI and I do it on my own before weight loss surgery, I'm probably going to skip weight loss surgery. I won't even lie. Now, if that doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's also like you're you're healthy. This is the frustrating thing about fat phobia, right? Is that people think that because someone's fat, they're not healthy. You've literally just sat here and told us that you exercise five days a week. Oh yeah. Uh, we know that you have a good relationship with food that's only becoming more disordered the more you talk about weight loss surgery. Yeah. And you've your body has already been through so much trauma. You know, like to to have to put yourself in that position because of the way the world sees you and how this has influenced the medical system and the inherent bias of the medical they system. They see it as a bias. Um, yeah. And for, you know, one of the most astounding things I think I listened to was when they recently were talking about COVID and how it's disproportionately affecting Black communities, even though they may have the smaller percentage of communities because of like all these underlying health risks, right? These comorbidities, diabetes, high blood pressure, da, da, da. and I'm like, but what about medical neglect? Right. But you can't have these conversations if we don't talk about the social economic disparities too that occur in our communities. So if we don't make as much money, you know, as a person who's white, if you or, live in a food desert and you can't buy right, organic and, vegetables, and I just tell you like, Going into the grocery store in an urban area versus going into a suburban area is the wildest thing sometimes because, all right, I'm a little bougie in my taste. I love sushi. I like poke bowls. Like, you know, I don't want to eat chitlins. So it's like, yeah. Like, I want to be able to go. But if I go into the Kroger's in my area and, you know, where I live is considered suburban, you know, it's, it's more, it's predominantly black, but it's not like the hood. It's not the ghetto. Um, but if I drive up the street to go to the grocery store, because it's in a predominantly black area, the things that are accessible in those stores are totally different than if we go over to the side of town that's been gentrified. And it's like, there's a, there's a Kroger's that is, I used to go to by my old job and it had a bar and it, and it had this and it had uh, all this fancy schmancy stuff. And I'm like, I can't even go into my Kroger's and get crab salad. <laughs> but yeah. I, I have to drive 30 minutes away to go get that in a suburban area. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I hear them talk about, well, yeah, because black people have diabetes, I'm like, yeah, because you guys are shoveling Kool-Aid on our shelves, hiking yeah. the prices up on the things that are actually healthy and making ramen noodles available. So with mm-hmm. your person who has multiple children or even just yourself, but you don't have the funds for it, you're going to, you're going to shop to eat what you can afford. Yep. And there, yeah, there are people who are out here like, well, you can budget and be healthy. And I'm like, I will never deny the privilege that I have coming from a two income household. My husband and I have two incomes. I recognize that we have a privilege in that sense. Yeah, but you're also raising three kids. Right. And even with that, we've been able to manage that. But I'm like, some days it's really tough. So imagine not having that. You know what I mean? And how much harder that is. So when people are casting all these judgments and they're like, well, you know, black people are more obese, this, that, and third because of how you eat. I'm like, if you even knew the history of how some of these delicacies came into place in the black communities and where it stems from, 
you would understand necessity, necessity. Why there's such a gap, you know, yeah. and why you see such differences. So when they talk about health and comorbidities and things like 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 that, and like you have to acknowledge mm. that discriminatory practices in healthcare. Yes, it is. And that these trickle down to where we're getting our food from, where we're living, what the conditions are like, where we're living, our school system, like everything is affected. Do you know, like, so when I joined, so one of the things my doctors told me to do was to join a, um, when I first found out I had Hashimoto's, to join a support group because there would be other people who understood. So you, wait a minute, you got a diagnosis and you were offered a support group. I didn't get that. Oh yeah. So I had a doctor. She, the mind canals was just really cool about this. She was like, yeah. you know, you're because I didn't realize that there was so much stigma with Hashimoto's, how it wasn't really viewed as a real disease because you can have yeah. Hashimoto's and have a normal thyroid lab, but still have symptoms. <laughs> yes. Thank so, you. And that's how medical gaslighting happens. And, and there we go. So when I joined the communities, so there are communities on Facebook, but I'm usually the only person of color in these groups. And the reason that is, is because they don't typically test us. for. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's not because there's less of a prevalence of Hashimoto's in the black community. It's just because no one else is being offered the test. But let me tell you. So when I started sharing my journey through all of this on Instagram and on my blog, suddenly other black women were coming forward and they're like, wait a minute, you just said something that seems really interesting because I've been going through this. They would go and they would come back and tell me, oh my God, I got tested. And they told me I have a hypothyroidism or, oh my goodness, I just found out I have Graves disease. When I tell you the lack of knowledge, the lack of resource, the lack of testing, because they don't think we suffer from these things. So I always wonder, I'm like, when we get these numbers and they talk about, um, statistics where, okay, it's more white women who are going to deal with Hashimoto's or that. Is that really the case or are you not testing? That's exactly it. It's the lack of testing. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting too, because you also mentioned before we hit record again, there was a lot of stuff we talked about, but even the sleep apnea thing that like you have sleep apnea in your family. And we know that it's a throat issue. If you have obstructive sleep apnea, it's a throat issue, right? And that that's one that can be genetic because we were talking about how my mom has the same thing I have. Your mom has the same thing and your siblings have, and also your grandmother had and your uncle had. And yet your grandmother, your uncle, they were never tested and they died younger because of it. Right. But they ended up having, you know, whether it was a heart disease or something, an underlying condition that very possibly could have been caused by sleep apnea that was left untreated for their entire lifetime. Absolutely. My mom, had never been tested for it. No one in my family got tested for sleep apnea until I did. And once I did, and then I realized, oh, holy snap, like my mom, I hear her sleeping. I can hear her snoring. I hear her stopping her breath in her sleep. Like, mom, you need to go. Same thing with my sister. I'm like, you're like, I can hear you gasping for air. Like, you need to go. And it's, um, a, it's a gift when you know you have the diagnosis because now you can right. also keep an eye on your kids. Well, then there we go. So turns around, like, after I got my thyroid diagnosis, um, I, like, got so, like, thyroid eyes. Like, I could just – my automatic yeah. reaction, I look at people's necks when I'm talking to them. It's yeah. crazy, but it's been helpful because my sister found out she has a goiter. I was oh literally talking to her, and I'm looking at her, and I'm like, hey, hey, you need to go get that checked. And she's like – flagging me like no turns out she's got a thyroid issue 
my other sister who doesn't live in Georgia, she called me randomly shortly after everything I had gone through and said she was having heart palpitations and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, do you feel like anything's in your throat? And she said, yeah. And I'm like, sounds like you might have hyperthyroidism, not hypo. I'm like, get that checked out. She had it. She has Graves' disease. So I'm like, we often don't know because we're not being told. And then this all cycles back into the communities that people are living in, right? And and environmental factors that are contributing to autoimmune disease, right? Go. That like whatever food is available to us, whatever homes we're living in, whether they're new builds or old builds, whether there's mold exposure, you know, we don't know exactly what causes autoimmune disease, but we do certainly know that there are environmental factors at play. And if you're living in a disadvantaged environment, you right. may have a higher risk of these things, which are then not being tested for. I think the interesting thing is my mom, she has um, she has several different autoimmune diseases. So the first thing I learned is that if you have one, you're prone to having multiple. Yep. So she, um, she got diagnosed. I cannot remember the name of this. Lankin, like, I always say this wrong. Like something in the scalp where her scalp mm. tissue. Oh, lichen, like a lichen type planted. thing? Yes. It's where the follicles, hair follicles, they die. They scab mm. up the blister and it creates necrosis and it scars over and the hair doesn't grow anymore. She got diagnosed wow. that when she was young. Um, they've been testing her for lupus for years. Mm. She has never tested positive, but my aunt did. And I found out recently that they told me I have something called ANA markers, but that they have to keep an eye on it over the, you know, I just have to be tested regularly. One of the things I think is sometimes not knowing your family history is really tough. That's Um, such a good point. Know your family history and ask if it's not being discussed. Um, So my mom's dad, um, she didn't know much about him because when our parent, when her parents divorced, um, like his family wouldn't release like medical records and things to my mom's and her sister. So like they, he died of some form of cancer. They don't even know what kind of cancer cause they won't tell wow. him. Um, but so she's got like all this history that's unknown. So for me, I'm like very in tune with my parents. Like I'm all up in my parents' business. Like my dad and my mom, I'm like, I need to know. Yeah, because you've learned. Yeah. And you know, my dad is like trying to tell me things that he's aware of, but then he's just like, you know, they don't really talk about that stuff in my family. So I'm like Mm -hmm. hurting and you know, the, the family members that I am in contact with, like on my dad's side, I found out like he's got family and thyroid disease is prevalent over there. I wouldn't have known that, you know, had I not found out, like I had a cousin who they both had thyroidectomies. There's so much that goes into this and knowing your family history is a really, really big one. And even Mm -hmm. knowing what you're predisposed to because of ethnicity. So my mom and my dad are both mixed. So there's other (laughs) things at play um, and knowing what I'm predisposed to. So in some cases where doctors are just like, well, this doesn't typically happen to people of color. I'm like, okay, person of color, but um, my family, my mom is this and my dad is that. And Mm. you you wouldn't know it just looking at me, but you can't just assume that I won't have this because just because you present as a black woman doesn't mean that's all you are. Right. And just, and I can't assume that, you know, this person is only white. You could be Jewish, which can put you at a predisposition for, um, I can't remember the name, Tay-Zax. I think that's what it is. Like, Tay-Zax, yeah. You can't just know by looking at somebody. And I think these doctors get really lazy and they're just like, oh. Well, and I think also what happens is that there is an element of, uh, 
racial bias that that then comes into it. Even with like, you know, if you're black, you're predisposed to this. If you're Jewish, you're predisposed Uh to that. It's like, oh, then these become the weaker, the weaker links, you know, like the weaker races. And and that's where you see ethnic cleansing (laughs) in other parts of the world, you know? Yeah. It's amazing, but it's true. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely true. And one of the things I, you know, I have conversations with people all the time and I'm just like, you don't even realize how ingrained this stuff is systemically. You don't realize it. And that's what makes it so hard. I think sometimes why people buck back against the whole conversation of racial disparity, because no, kumbaya, we've had a black president. And I'm like, no, but racism still exists. Everyone does not like the system. And I'm not even saying it's your fault. You know, you weren't here when this was being, you know, ingrained into the system. But it is your fault if you're not doing something about it right now. It's your fault if you refuse to acknowledge it Mm. or you, you dismiss it or it's so normalized that you don't see the problem with it. Um, I did, I remember being a teenager and doing a little experiment when we were job hunting myself and my friends. And I have a, I had a pretty ambiguous name um, because it was my maiden name was Flowers. It was Alicia Flowers. And, you know, I've had friends who had names that are considered more ethnic than mine. So we would, like, we would play games on our applications just to see what would happen, like, who would get the callback. So, like, I would put down, like, my race was, like, white. Or my friend would, like, change her name from something that sounded really ethnic and would change to something really basic, like, Jane, to see. And this is us as teenagers figuring mm-hmm. out that if, if my homeboy's name is Raheem, he's more than likely not going to get this callback versus my guy friend named Mark. And that was just the reality. And we learned that so early. And I'm like, if this happens in employment, why wouldn't it happen in healthcare? It happens across the board. Absolutely. You pick up a chart and the first thing you see is this person's name is this. No, they're a person of color. You're prepared to have this conversation about diabetes and blood pressure. I promise you, you are. Mm. I think what blows my mind is that immediately doctors are like, well, you know, you're not supposed to eat this, that, and third. And even as I was talking to the doctor the other day and they're just like, well, um, do you drink, you know, have you cut down your soda? I'm like, I haven't drunk soda in a decade. <laughs> like, I don't even drink juice. Just because you look at me and you see a fat woman doesn't mean that I'm lazy. They think, they just assume this. Like, when I say, like, <laughs> the worst thing is my mom was talking to her therapist. And she was, like, explaining to him how she was worried about, you know, my health issues and things and how it was kind of making her feel concerned. And the doctor's asking her questions. He's just like, yeah, so what's going on with your daughter? And she's telling him, yeah, so, you know, she got her rollator and she's doing really well. And he's like, she walks. And my mom's like, yeah, like, she walks, she exercises. And her doctor was floored. Was just floored that, really, your daughter is over 400 pounds and she does these things? Yeah, because you can, because you're actually fitter than everyone presumes. 600 pound life ruined it for everybody. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this is the other thing is like you have mobility aids, but you don't use them all the time. And you have them for when you're having bad flares with your pain, you know, and like this is a whole other aspect of that chronic illness life, isn't it? You know, like when you have to get okay with using mobility aids because that's a hard thing to do when you're a young person and you're like, my body should be working right. Um, normally. I say, like, I have to use my rollator. Like, there's just no getting around that. I'm able to stand for, you know, smaller periods of time. If I'm walking a short distance, I can use a cane. 
Um, but people don't tell you canes are horrible for your gait and they don't help your joint problems. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, to, it unevenly distributes weight. Right. It's a, and so like, if you see me with a cane, it's cause I'm briefly doing something. And there are times I'm able to stand for a little bit longer without it, but I suffered a while with my pain because I was too hard headed. And really that stemmed from, I can't be the fat person with the mobility. Well, and that, isn't that also like, okay, now I'm going to punish myself for being fat. Like now yeah. I will, I will play into what I'm being told from the outside about I my was, appearance. I remember being pregnant and my husband's like, Alicia, get in the mark cart. And I'm like, no, I'm not getting in the mark cart. Like I, and I would mind you, I'm like, eight months pregnant. It's okay if I'm in a mark cart. Like who cares if I wasn't even eight months pregnant? Like, but in my mind, I'm like, I am going to suffer through this because I refuse to be pointed at and laughed at, um, by anybody who's going to tell me my weight is my problem. Um, and even after I gave birth and I, I was, it would be so hard. I would be like walking through Walmart and would have to go sit in the pharmacy department because there's a bench over there and cry. Because I was in so much pain. They told me I needed a cane. I didn't get a cane for another six months after they told me I needed a cane. Because I was like, nine months. Because I was just like, "Mm -mm." they told me I needed to get my handicap placard for my car. It took me a year before I actually went and turned that thing in. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. What about using that handicap placard? Have you ever experienced any uh, judgment for using it? Um, yes, only because people can't tell right away mm-hmm. what my issue is. So like, you know. And you're rol- relatively young. Right, and I'm young. So like, my rollator is in the usually is in the in the trunk of my van so if they see me getting out of the car they're just kind of like do you need this or whatever and it's not until they see the rollator that then they they, you know you you see the look of oh but then there's always also like this look of well I wonder what's wrong with her and why like people stare people well and also like here you are you're a fat woman like are they looking at you and going like oh that must be her fault yes oh yeah like there have been times like I have gotten in the mark cart and people have shook their head at me. Like just shame on I'm you. I'm like, I'm literally shaking my head at those people shaking their heads. I'm just like, <laughs> I've, I've seen it. I, I would say I probably have tougher skin than a lot of people. Cause I'm just, that's just who I am. Not to say that I have an experience. You don't grow up in New Haven for nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I just think I've got a little bit tougher skin than some people. Um, but it doesn't, but I think because I experienced bullying at such a young age, I had no choice but to learn how to toughen up. Um, and I also knew I wasn't going to get a fair shake in life. I knew that being a person of color, being a woman and being a person of size, like I, I just knew the cards are stacked against me. Um, so 
I'm more surprised, honestly, when people actually ask questions. Now, I've had that. And I would prefer you to ask, even though it's none of your business, I would prefer you to ask and I would for you to assume. So when people are like, you know, you're so young, like, why do you need that? And I share it with them. A lot of them are shocked. Or I will hear from people who will tell me, I have the same pain as you, but I don't, you know, I don't want to say anything. And I'm just like, there's a million of us out here suffering. And we will literally suffer to avoid the stigma. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, through all of this journey that you've been telling us, it sounds like you've become your own advocate. I mean, Barna, yes. you have no learned to be that. Yeah, you you had no choice in the matter. But interestingly, your son may have different choices than you do. So you yeah. have a special needs son. I do. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it's like being a mom of a kid who's <laughs> living with with different chronic um, illnesses and and how that manifests in terms of advocacy for you too and how that's changed your opinion of the medical Absolutely. So it's been a wild ride. So part of the problem with having a child who has special needs is he's not the problem. It's everything else. Um, it's the system. So he's not the problem. He's just a kid. He, he's just a kid. So like, yeah. so like my son, he, so when we lived in Philly, they were homeschooled. So um, although they went to a house with other children, they were, it was a very small environment. So moving down here, brick and mortar, this was their first experience. So he was in first grade when we first moved down here. Um, there were things that I noticed about him very early on. Um, he's always been super messy and super chaotic and his desk would be a mess. And I would be so upset and I'm like, how can you function in this? But on the flip side of that, my son was an honorable student. Um, he won awards for being the, like the best reader in the state for his grade. Um, his lexicon level is, has always been far more advanced than his age. Um, he's always done what, like he was almost like very savant, like with certain things. And I just was just like, well, you know, I was a pretty smart kid. I'm going to take credit for that. Like, yeah, he's brilliant. But then there were things. I was going to say, no kitty yours is like, of course he's smart. Like he's yours, but yeah, please go uh, on. I would say. (laughs) that happens by osmosis and genetics. (laughs) His dad, his dad would argue. (laughs) (laughs) You can just say that's from his side. (laughs) I noticed though, that when he was in first grade, um, he was very hyperactive. Now, I wasn't quick to label him because we already know what happens when they label little black boys with anything. So by the time he was in second I'm grade, very glad you say that. I just want to like point out that like as a mom, you know, you saying that and like being – this is like an additional awareness yeah. that parents of color have, especially oh, yeah. if they have sons, yes. you know, being aware of the way in which their kids are going to be judged by the system right. in the world when they Absolutely. left them out there. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, what I loved is that his teacher, so he was going to his just a regular district school. His teacher um, said to me, by the time he was going into second grade, his teacher said, you got to get him out of here. You got to get him into a better school there's something called the school choice program where it's like a lottery where you can apply to put him somewhere else. She was like, he does not belong here. She's like, he's too smart and he needs to be molded. Um, so we applied for school choice and he got into a different school. Um, and it worked well, except when he was in third grade, 
is when his tics started. So by third grade, um, we had had him assessed and evaluated the first time and we realized he had ADHD. And that's okay. Not the end of the world. We had to learn a different way of managing him. We fought to get a 504 put in place for him, which protects his rights, um, gives him a little bit more time if he needs it. Um, he needs a lot of redirection. Um, as he's gotten older, it's definitely gotten better. Um, but that was like kind of like the start of the ticks. So it started with whistling. He would whistle like crazy. And, and at first it wasn't clicking for me. Like he's not, he can't control this. So we would be like, Oh my God, Johnny, stop. <laughs> whistling. Like, you know, you're like, and then I started realizing he started I said something he did. He made like a noise and it gave me pause because it was a noise I used to make as a kid. Now, fast forward, my therapist told me, like, you probably had an undiagnosed tick disorder and you didn't even know it as a kid. And he was like, it was just often common in children who have anxiety. Um, oh, I have wow. But this is something anxiety. that you don't have now as an adult. It was just. No, I, if I'm very anxious. I will tick. Um, it's, it's, very, it's not like my son's, but I will. And the crazy thing is my mom was like, we didn't know what it was. And we just thought you were being the annoying little sister. And they would just tell me to be quiet, like, and make fun. My, my siblings would make fun of me. Yeah. And but fast forward, it's what made me stop and say, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Like, so I just observed him. And I, I said something to my husband. And at first, my husband was like, really apprehensive, again, for the same reasons. Like, I don't want to label him. Like, I don't want him to be the black kid with the problems. Um, but then the whistling turned into something else. And then those, and then we started seeing a succession of noises and I started paying attention more. Like he used to do this thing with his hands, which he had been doing forever, but, and then he would grimace. So I started doing some research and realized that with ticking, they can have, um, motor ticks, I mean, movements of the body, but also verbal ticks, and it usually will go hand in hand. And so when I read that it was like the grimacing of the face or sometimes the movement of the fingers, and that around eight or nine is when you'll start to see it really um, manifest in boys, and it will get worse before it gets better, it was like he was textbook. So I went to his pediatrician, and I said, listen, like, I, I want him evaluated and assessed for this. And they were more surprised by how much knowledge I had on it. But I'm like, I knew not to come with my ducks in a row because I already knew like I was going to be the hysterical mom who is dismissed. Um, lo and behold, he had it. Um, and we talked about it. Um, we talked and, about and he had it as in Tourette syndrome. Tourette syndrome. Yes. Um, which they, A, it's not common in African-American children. So they say. But because it doesn't get tested for right, there we go. It gets labeled as something else. So one of the things we did, um, we tried medication briefly with ADHD. It didn't work. And That's a tough know. one too. Cause ADHD, you don't know whether it's something that will change as they get older. Well, and... here's the, here's the trick to that. The drug that they were giving him for the ADHD, it helped control his ticks for a short while. And then it made him worse. Um, because the medication they give ADHD children are stimulants to help. Right. Them. And if he's already dealing with potential anxiety. Right. So we decided to take him off the medication. He hasn't been medicated since probably third or fourth grade. Um, and, and how old is he now? 
he's 11, he'll be 12 in July. So what ended up happening was we were in a fight for our life with the school system. Um, because part of the problem is he was in a, a, a gifted school. He was in a school for gifted children. He was in all gifted classes. They were not used to a child like him. He was the only one like him in his class. So they weren't very... In the sense that he was high functioning, but had... He was high functioning, but he had the ticks and the noises. So the kids would, you know, give him trouble for it. They didn't like it. Oh, Jelani's making noise. He's doing this, that, and the third. To the point where we had to meet several times with the school, his administrative staff, and we're like, he has a 504 in place. We're going to enforce this. You guys have to adhere to it. I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable or if it's troublesome for you, but this is what it is for him. So there was a lot of back and forth because they wanted to put him in. They wanted to give him an IEP, but he wasn't eligible for one because he's not special ed. So you can't give him an IEP. He's able to do the work. He's able to keep up. He's, you know, beyond... You have to create an environment for him, though, in which he can thrive. And the idea of them having to accommodate one kid versus the other 18 was like, it was skipping their mind. But the best thing happened was the school psychiatrist had the teachers come set at a roundtable session. And she gave everybody a piece of paper and a pencil. And she said, I want you guys to write down the words to the um, Pledge of Allegiance. But... Every third word, I want you to put your pencil down and I want you to clap, snap, pick your pencil up and pick up where you left off for one minute straight. This is an amazing school psychiatrist. So she, and she said, put the pencil down, snap, clap, pick your pencil back up and keep going. Not one adult at that table was able to do that within a minute. And she said, it's amazing. What it's like for him. Mm getting instruction from you guys. That's what it's like for him. That's what it's like for him to keep his focus. So in that moment, I could see the lights clicking on for his teachers. It was like, okay. So things kind of calmed down towards the end of the school year. It was a really rough school year. His last year at the school, because he was in fifth grade um, last year, and it was really tough. So we had to make a decision about where to send him to school this time. And I was just like, I don't want to do this again. So we found a school that was fairly new and it teaches atypical children and neurotypical children together. That's so wonderful. there's no special ed. It is literally a school of 260 kids from sixth grade to 12th grade. And they don't separate them. There's not a special ed class. There's a general education teacher and a special education teacher and they teach together. Mm. What it does is it creates a community where children who have different needs are they are acclimated to children who don't and the children who don't have special needs, they then learn how to interact with children who do have special needs and who are different. Yeah. And it creates a sense of community and empathy from both sides. Yes, it absolutely does. And one of the things that I thought about when we were applying, there was only one sixth grade seat open and it was a lottery. And I'm like, it was yours. And we got it. And when I, yes. I bawled my eyes out, like when this happened, because I was at my wit's end. I'm like, I cannot go to another school here of fighting with these teachers and stuff like that. So he's there now. And to see him thrive and flourish and have 
his community. He has a community and he didn't have that before at his previous school. And he's going to have that community all the way until he graduates high school. Graduates high school. It was like a godsend. It was amazing. It has been freaking fantastic because to see him thrive and really, the thing I do love most about my son is he has resiliency that I wish I could bottle and sell because this kid he's such an emotional kid. Like he's really empathetic. He's really, he's like a gentle giant. Like my son's <laughs> super tall. Like he's a big kid. And he's just like the sweetest though. And he's not necessarily. So, you know, when you're on a spectrum, a lot of times touch and sensory disorder and things like that. So we do go through that. Um, but even with those things, he still likes affection in his own way. Um, so to see him just coming into his own and getting a little bit more comfortable, like now the ticks, we're so used to them that we don't even notice them unless other people are noticing them. Like it is yeah. a part of... And yours and your other kids too, obviously. I mean, it sounds like at home, yeah. things are just oh, like, yeah. this, is, this is how life is. Like, how it is. like yeah. my daughter is, she'll be 17 um, in May and she's like very protective over him. Like they'll fight like cats and dogs, but she does not like allow for anybody to get after her brother. And in that sense, she's like really revved up, like no. And then his the, the littlest one, he's three, going on four. He like is he just follows my son around so much. It, like he just has to be near his brother. They share a room, but it's like he doesn't even notice the ticks. And it, I laugh sometimes because I see him sometimes like imitating him, like whistling, he'll do it. Oh, that's very cute. But it's like, it's like, it's not even a thing for him. And I love that mm. he has that. Yeah. Because he, at home, it's an integrated environment. Yeah. And at school it is. It's too. an integrated environment. I worry. I think I probably worry more than he does. Sure. Okay. And this is what it's like to be a mom, but all, to also be an advocate <laughs> and yeah. to have gone through what you've gone through and have a son who you're going to have to be looking out for as well. Right. But I always, you know, I want him to know how to advocate for himself too. So we talk a lot about, you know, and he's not the most communicative kid unless he's talking about something he wants to. So you really have to like, when you ask questions, you have to be really specific. Like you can't say, how's your day at school? Cause he'll just say, great. You have to be like, so how was math class? How was ELA? How was your interactions in physical education? Did anything happen today that made you emotionally feel different? You have to be really specific because he won't just come out and say those things. Um, that's also I, that's also like boys of a certain age too. Oh <laughs> so in that girl sense, he's too. quite typical. And girl, yeah, like at certain ages, they're going to be less responsive because they're sort of feeling their way through yeah. it too. Like so, uh, that's all very much to be expected. We got the opportunity to watch a documentary on HBO together. I can't remember the name of it, but it was about children who had Tourette's syndrome. And I asked him, I said, do you want to watch this? And he's like, yeah. And we watched it together. And for the first time ever, I saw an emotional reaction out of him in terms of like him having tears when he watched it because it was relatable for him. Um, and it was just like, in that moment, like I just wanted to hug him and hold him and I'm going to cry because <laughs> it's just like, because mm. um, you just, He's such a resilient kid that sometimes I forget, you know, like this is his reality. This is what he goes through. This is what this feels like to him. And we don't know where this is going to take us. You know, his ticks could calm down. It happens. Sometimes they don't and they carry him into adulthood. We don't know which way it's going. But, but good for him, you for being a mom who's been sticking up for him. From yeah, I'm not letting nobody 
keep in mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, but also, I mean, it's interesting because you've been burned by yeah. the by the system that's now supporting your son in some ways. And I think to come to terms with that, to be okay with where you're at, and to be able to use the system to its advantages yeah, because for your son. does have advantages if you have the know-how. And that's part of the problem. So many people that I talk to all the time. Well, there's no education. There's no education about it. There's no class in school, like not even a college. No one, yeah. why, why there is not a college class on like filling out your tax return, <laughs> you know, like filling out an application for insurance and things like that. Like, cause these are basic life skills in this country that are so complicated. Right. But it's basic things that it's like when my mom goes to the doctor now, like I forever check in with my mom and I'm like, when you go, you need to ask these questions. You need to demand these things. And my mom is. So now you're the advocate for everyone around you. Right. And she, like I said, my mom's super non-confrontational and I'm like, do I need to come to your doctor's appointment with you? Because I will. (laughs) I just want you to come to my doctor's appointments with me to hang out with me in the waiting room. Oh yeah. I'll be in there asking all the questions. Like, Like, this can't. Well, especially because we have some of the same, like we both have Hashimoto's so we can sit and be like, so talk to us all about it. Because you know, doctors really hate when you tell them you Google stuff, right? They're like, oh, you need yeah, to but the best Google. is when they Google stuff in front of you. <laughs> all right, thank you. I'm glad that you know that because I'm like, your, yeah. your little medical, whatever software you're using is literally the medical version of Google. Mm-hmm. You're literally guesswork when you're, you're putting together symptoms and you're putting it into a system and you're deciding based upon your education and what you're reading on this screen, what this person may potentially have and yeah. then you have to test to confirm it. But it's also, it, it is, it behooves us as patients as well to know that like a doctor comes in and like their job is to get to the bottom of it, right? Like their right. job is to figure out the answer. But sometimes like figuring out the answer requires a little digging and a little research. And like, it's not the worst thing to see people Google things in front of you if they're doing it for the right reasons. Well, I just go to the doctors now with my diagnosis and I've yet to be wrong. And I know that sounds really wild. And I know this is why my doctors can't stand me, but like you're an empowered patient before my endocrinologist, um, had, you know, I had to go have an ultrasound and stuff done and all that stuff. I Googled goiter to find out what it was because that's what I thought I had. And told my doctor, I think this is what I have. And I think I need to be tested for Hashimoto's. They don't even test for Hashimoto's. And I'm like, I need to have my TPO antibodies checked. And she looked at me. Oh, like, good for you. She's like, where did you read that? I'm like, doesn't matter where I read it. What I'm saying is. Because I didn't know that. It took me going to several doctors to have a doctor teach me. Well, that's where those um, Facebook groups came yeah. in handy because there was so much discussion. Um, and even when I just got my new endocrinologist coming over to Blue Cross, I, you know, there was this huge argument with me over, I'm not taking levothyroxine because when I first had levothyroxine, it put me in stroke territory and I don't want that. So then she just had me try Synthroid and did the same thing. I'm now on Tyrosin, which is doing wonderful so far. Is that like a, like a, um, natural desiccated thyroid? No, it is not. So my doctor will not prescribe. I was literally on armor and MP5 rage. She won't prescribe it because she said it's not regulated and they can't, they don't know. Yeah. Some doctors have trouble with compounding pharmacies. Yeah. Uh, So what she said was Tyrosin. So if you are a person who has an autoimmune disease, you really have to be mindful about the fillers in your drug, not just the drug, the fillers. So Tyrosin has like um, very few fillers in it. And 
part of that problem though is it's not authorized by a lot of insurances. So my insurance didn't cover Synthroid, which is the name brand of levothyroxine. So I had to get an approval for that. It didn't work anyway. So she put me in the Tyrosin. We had to go through the process of getting that approved because she had to tell them like she's allergic to this stuff. And if we give her anything else, it's going to kill her. Um, but because Tyrosin, like the good drugs, the insurance companies don't cover it because they're expensive. Too expensive for the insurance companies. Oh, yeah. who are making all this money off of us as it is. I got mine and with insurance, it cost me $50 per prescription. It's not cheap. No. And without insurance, it would have been almost $200. And imagine but, how that adds up over the year. I'm like, well, first of all, it's a gel capsule. I've never seen that for um, thyroid meds before. Nor have I. I don't, that's because there's less fillers. I was about to say, and I wonder if that's why, and it absorbs differently because, you know, gel capsules dissolve fairly quicker than. I've uh, never heard of this medication. I can't wait to ask my endo about yes, it. Yes, and I've never heard of it either. And she is just like, yeah, you're, you're going to take two pills a day. Um, and the other thing is they did not talk to me about how your weight does affect the amount of medication you need. Um, so there was a whole conversation about that. And I finally asked somebody, I'm like, is it perhaps. You guys aren't prescribing me the right dosage, but this might be a problem. Good for you. Um, so just learning certain nuances of things to ask now, like, I know they get frustrated with me. I know they're like, ma'am, stay off Google. But I'm like, if I don't do this, you guys will drop the ball. Like, I you don't, have- none of your doctors have been, have been happy that you've come to them with answers. No, some of, let me tell you my, okay. So the doctor I have now is awesome. And they're just like, so we love that you come in here and you're just like, this is what's going on. Um, but some doctors know they don't like it. Um, and I found that more with my endocrinologist and I've had a few now because I fire my doctors very regularly. I won't lie. Um, they don't like that because they feel like you're telling them how to do their job. So when I told them, um, you should be testing more than just my T4, you need to be testing my T3 as well. Well, that doesn't really affect it. Yes. Yes, it does. And I also need you to check selenium and I need to check my vitamin D. And I need you because these things can be forms of um, deficiencies for people with thyroid disease. So, no, some doctors don't like that. My therapist, she loves it because she's just like, oh, you come in here and you're very interesting because you diagnose yourself. <laughs> I'm like, I've been living, I've been, I'm considered a high functioning depressed person. And I told, I told my doctor, you know, that has taken years of, I've been dealing with it for so long that I learned to mimic normal behavior as a kid, just because I knew if I didn't, it was going to strike people as me being odd and I told her I had to learn to adapt to my environment I'm like and I don't know that that's necessarily a healthy thing it just it's helped me be able to function um so talking to a therapist I've learned a lot more about myself and I think my experience is what has caused me to have to be this way like I had like if I depend on anybody else to advocate for me they're not they're not going to do it. They're not going to do mm. it. But it's great that you are also mentioning the mental health aspect oh, yeah. of this too, because, you know, these are physical disorders that we're going through. But if you're not also taking care of the mental health side of things right. and being okay with who you are and who this these chronic illnesses make you become, 
right. for better or for worse, then you're kind of lost. And and the fact that like you're actively going to a therapist and like that therapist is talking. With that. Yeah. And like you mentioned, your mom has a therapist too. Like it sounds yeah. like your family's very open to mental health. It wasn't always sense. that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I really attribute that to my mom. My mom very young, she sent us to therapists. We, I didn't, I didn't take my therapy or any of those things seriously until I was well into my adulthood. Because at the time, I was really like, I don't need to talk to anybody about my feelings. But my mom really pioneered that for us. And I think I was about twenty or so when I really started realizing, like, I'm really struggling with my mental health. And I mean, it was rough because after I had my daughter, I went through a really bad postpartum and didn't even know that that's what I was going through. Um, and my first experience with any type of antidepressant, I was probably like 20 to 21. And it's been a journey. Even with- yeah, like, <laughs> like people. I've I think that's a good time too, because your hormones are starting to settle a little more after like yeah. teenage. And you're not a kid anymore. Right. Mm. Um, and I've had to be very vocal about mental health and, it, you know, making that choice. I knew it was a possibility that people would look at me like you're sharing too much. You're crazy. But if I don't share, I could, you know, I could be saving somebody's life. Um, and the number of people who've come out of the woodwork and said to you, yes. I have this story too, you know, right. and I'm it like, just shows why it's worth it. You need to normalize the conversation around mental health because it's just not adequate enough. Um, I, you know, I was hospitalized before. And when I share that with people, they, you know, people make jokes about the crazy house and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, but I've been there. Like I've been in the psych ward. You know, I've gone through that process. It's very humbling, but it also, it was helpful. If I hadn't done it, I don't know what would have happened to me. Um, And I'm like, when I know how close to the edge I was teetering, when I think about other people, sometimes when you're depressed or you're dealing with anxiety or mental health, it manifests in really bad ways, including your health. And people just yeah. have the connection between your body and your mind. But yeah. if your mind's not right, it will take a toll on your body. Mm-hmm. But even if you are, say, predisposed to autoimmune disease, mental health can exacerbate that. And it's like a vicious cycle because physical health can exacerbate the mental health. So it's like, you got to take care of all of it. Yeah. I'm so glad you're saying that. And I, I want everyone who's listening to, to keep that in mind, I, you know, that like, this is a, a whole body system and that includes your mind, which influences your emotions, you know, and yeah. it's yeah. so important to take this lesson from someone like Alicia, who's been through it, take it from me, who's been I, through it, you know, I, like take care of all of those aspects of your health and don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Cause that's exactly what you're teaching us to do by continuing to be yourself and just shedding a light on it. Being a parent forces mm-hmm. me to have to do that to my daughter. Like she, like I said, she's going on 17, but she has been diagnosed with depression and um, her experience. And I always tell her, I would never go into her business because I want her to find her voice and be able to use it um, and open up when she's ready. But it's been a journey since she was about 12 or 13 and she would be 17 this year. And it's still an ongoing battle. Um, and I think what broke my heart the most was I felt like, is this something I gave her, you know, like, cause I really, I wonder about that as someone like, I haven't had kids and I'm like, do I want to? Cause I don't want them to go through what I've been through, but at the same token, I thought like, you know, we created, you know, even though her biological father is, is not the person I'm married to 
my husband's been in her life since she was two. And I'm like, we worked really hard to create this environment for our children. And I had all these ideas about how we wanted our families to be. And I wanted it to be open and I wanted them to be able to talk to us. And I want, you know, I want to give them experiences and I want to do things that they always feel nurtured and loved and cared for. And despite those things, she still manifested with depression. And it was, it felt like such a failing to me. Like, you know, and I understand it's really not, you know, we're imperfect. You cannot help sometimes what your genetic makeup is. and Or what your environment produces. Like you just right. don't know. You don't know. Um, so having her and going through that experience, it was almost like reliving it again. But I'm very grateful that I had my own experience because I was able to spot it. You know, I was able to see it for a long, you know, I was able to say, hey, like, this feels like you're going through some things because she wouldn't have verbalized it otherwise. And we've, we've always kept the conversation of mental health very open in our family because they were, she was probably about seven or eight, I think when I got hospitalized and I didn't want it to be a secret. And I also didn't want them blaming themselves. So it was, and this was when you were hospitalized with the thyroid stuff. Oh, with this um, mental health, when I had gone into the psych ward, Oh, yes, this I, is a whole part of the story we haven't even talked about. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. When so I you went, were you were hospitalized for mental health and not yeah, yeah for a week. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Back in twenty twelve and twenty twelve. And so she she had to have been about seven. Um and I was I had gone like two weeks without sleeping. And you know what that does if you don't mm-hmm. sleep. And I was losing my mind and I told my husband, like, I'm having suicidal thoughts. And he was like, let's take you to the emergency room. We got to the emergency room. They immediately were like, we're going to put you in the psych ward. Um, And so I went through that process. So they have to do a 72-hour hold for suicidal ideation. Um, But after my 72 hours, doctors came to me and said, hey, listen, we can let you go. We can't force you to stay here, but we would like for you to stay here so that we can get you the help you need. Your insurance covers it we just want to get you adjusted to medication and have you stay here and do some therapy. And so I did, I, I almost went home. I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was crying. I'm like, I want to go home to my family, but my husband. And that's like, tough too. Cause like you've already experienced a mistrust of the medical system, but this is right. an instance where right. they were actually helping you. Trying to help me. Yeah. And so my husband was just like, look, let's do it. Like you do that. Like, let's do it if it's going to help you. And so when I got home, you know, my kids just knew that mom had been gone for a week. And they didn't, and they knew I was in the hospital and they couldn't come to see me because I wouldn't let them. Like, I'm like, I don't want them in the psych ward. Like my husband came to see me. Uh, I think they came to see me once. And I, it was just such a weird experience. And I was like, I don't like that. Keep them away from this. But when I came home, you know, I talked with them and I said, you know, I want to talk to you about being sick. Now, of course, my youngest was like three or four. So I mean, at the time he was like three or four. So he didn't understand. But my daughter was, you know, of an age. And I said, listen, you know, mommy's sick and not a physical sickness, but sometimes mommy gets really sad and mommy needs medication to help her feel better. I'm like, and if mommy is sad, it's not because of anything you do. So we we kept the conversation appropriate to her age. And as they got older, we revisit it because it's something that you need to know. Um, so they are very well-versed in depression and anxiety mm. um, and can have open conversation about it. And that's what made it, you know, at first she was kind of embarrassed by what she was going through. But once we, you know, 
I had to remind her, you remember, you know, what happened to talk to me about it. And that's how we talk with my son the same way. Like we, you need to be able to discuss these things. So when it happens or if it does happen, they feel safe. The when biggest- I'm a mom, I want to be a mom like you. <laughs> I don't know if you want to be a mom like me. But yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's amazing because it's exactly, I mean, it would be my instinct as well to be open in communication with your kids about stuff like that. And the fact that you've been open, not only about that, but about everything else you're going through. Right. Cause I grew up in a, an environment like my dad and my mom are polar opposites. Um, you know, they got divorced when I was, I think like 11 or something we're in there, but my dad comes from a very, um, you know, you don't talk about your problems type of family. You sleep it under the rug and, you know, I'm a black man. I got to be strong. Like you're, he's not allowed weakness. He's not allowed to. I mean, that's a big thing too. You know, right. like if you're a person of color and if you're male and like sort of living yeah, into mom. that masculinity yeah. fantasy. Yeah. Her experience was slightly different. My mom grew up, was, grew up in Bangor, Maine. Um, so like, wow. Yeah. So her experience was different and, and it was also different because of the makeup of her family. So, her family was very mixed. So there was um, a mixture of races in her family. So even her experience as a woman of color was different. Um, it's, it's amazing to see the dichotomy between her and my dad, like the absolute difference between them and their experiences. But her family was a lot more receptive to conversation. So even though her family had people of color in it, they were probably a little bit different in those manners. So talking about it wasn't odd. Um, my mom had a cousin who was in the psych ward, had a couple of family members who had been in mental hospitals way back when in the fifties and sixties. So it was something very known in her family. Um, so because of that, she, you know, was more or less like, I want to talk to you guys. I want you guys to talk to me. We didn't always accept that because we were kind of like my dad in that sense. Like, we're not talking about our emotions and feelings. We're not doing, we're going to eat them. We're going to smoke them. We're going to drink them. <laughs> <laughs> I would also like to get a drink with you. <laughs> yeah, like I, my mom, I really appreciate the fact that she planted those seeds. It took me a, a while to come around to that. Um, but I'm glad she planted those seeds because it helped me be able to at least come into adulthood and realize, like, you can't sweep these things under the rug, people. (laughs) um, Beautifully said, yeah. It does help with raising my children because now I know, like, now Mm -hmm. I know. So I'm like a total, I'm sure, for lack of a better word, like, nasty when it comes to their health, too. I'm like all Mm -hmm. over it, like... Anything that looks odd or suspicious to me, I'm writing it down and we're going to take it to the pediatrician. Well, there are plenty of white women out there who are like that with their kids and no one gives them any problems. So why should it be any different for you to be a woman of color and to be advocating for your kids? You know, it's it's this like, I love that we've talked so much about all the things you've been through, but also like the inherent injustices of the system and how they've affected the decisions that you've made, you know. Um, I've been told by people like, I am a, I act like a white mom and that is obnoxious. And I'm like, you have no idea how many black women really do advocate. There's a whole group. Oh yeah. This, well, this is the other thing is that like so much of what we're fighting, the injustices we're fighting against, it's always been black women right. led the charge and recognizing like, that. It's not even like, so there's a group that I'm in for women of color with children who are on the spectrum who have ADHD because they had, they ended up creating their own groups because in spaces where there were diversity, they weren't being heard. And it's like, oh, well, that's, that's not, 
it's not the same thing, you know, as what my son is going through. It's different. And I'm like, it's not different. Like the environment might be different and how your son is treated might be different, but they have the same condition. But when a, a young white boy is with ADHD, you know, they make, you know, room for that. They're like, oh, you know, he's just growing. He's going through something and he needs help. If it happens with a black boy, he's aggressive. Medicate him, put him away. And that is the difference. That's the only difference. They will be received. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the scary part. I love when I talk to moms of all colors, like because I understand that they understand, they know what that means. But there is a difference in our narratives because of the race, and that sucks. Um, and I do love when I'm able to connect with women and they're able to understand that. Um, because I won't sit up here and won't act like I've never gotten helpful tips from white women because there have been white women who are like, listen, you need to ask for this. You know, you may not know that, but here I'm going to tell you because be an ally. Be an ally. Like if there's something that I don't know, yeah, speak up, help me out. And if there's something that, you know, you have the privilege of being able to do and I don't speak up against it and make that information available and make those spaces welcoming so that women of color know like, hey, we we do understand what you're going to through to a certain extent. So here, let me help you with that. If we could do yeah. more of that. If we could do more of the, the coming together and lifting right. one another up. Yeah. It would make all the difference. So, so listen, we've covered so much today and I, I want to sort of slide into the tail end of this interview. Um, and I wrap things up with a couple of top three lists, which I think you'll probably have some fun with. <laughs> and I wanted to know, cause you're talking about, you know, tips you've gotten from white women, tips you've gotten from black women, <laughs> tips you've gotten from all over the place. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've got some tips to give and what your top three tips would be for other people who are in this chronic illness space with you, what are the top three things that you would say to help them along the journey? Um, First, you cannot be afraid to tell your truth. Yep. Fear is a very cumbersome thing and fear, whether it's fear of judgment, fear of reprisal, fear, you know, whatever the case may be, Sometimes that keeps us from getting what we need because we're afraid. So that's the first thing. While the illness itself may be scary and fearful, you can't be afraid to speak up and tell your truth because what you don't say could be the thing that is either going to make or break your situation. Um, And don't be afraid of no either because you're going to get told no. And you have to be prepared to say, I'm not accepting that no. Um, I'm like air clapping over here. <laughs> I, I've been doing so much nodding and clapping. In this interview. Yes, yes, yes. My second thing would be, um, you need to fight. And I know that sucks because fighting is exhausting, but if you don't fight, no one else is going to do it for you. Um, and by fighting, I don't just mean fighting for, you know, your rights within the healthcare system, Fight for your right to go take a nap because sometimes <laughs> we pressure ourselves so much to try to adhere to some standard that we can't because our bodies literally are like, no, sit down. So fight for your ability to come to terms with your health. And that is always a work in progress. Which includes like letting that fupa fly. Let the fupa fly. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, and I know this is going to sound totally random and off 
the charts, but it's not. Don't forget that you are a human and you own your sexuality, even with chronic illness. Yes. People forget that we are still human beings who appreciate touch and intimacy and all those things. And it's okay if it has to change. If you're not swinging from the chandeliers anymore, that's all right. There are other ways. Maybe retire the sex swing, move on to a more comfortable mattress. Something else, you know, but at the end of the day, don't forget to feed that part of your being because you deserve it. It's not, you know, sex and intimacy and romance are not relegated to the world of thin, healthy people, you know? (laughs) Whether you are chronically ill, whether you are fat, whether you are both or either or. If you live in a body, you deserve to feel pleasure. You deserve those things. And I think those are the things I would tell people to remember because those are probably the things I struggled with the most about this journey. Um, And it's not easy, but I'm grateful that I've done it because remind yourself that you deserve a slice of happiness. You know, even when you're going through these things, you deserve to be able to have peace of mind and sleep good. And I mean, you're a great example. You're someone who has been through it. And here you are celebrating all the wins on the other yeah, side. Yeah, look, I don't struggle. And I want to make that very clear. Like, there, there, I have days where I'm just like, I want to throw this roller. I'm going to mm-hmm. get up and take a walk on my own terms. But that's not going to happen right now. And I've got to be okay with that. And I remind myself that it's okay to grieve those things. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to be sad. You're losing something. It's okay. Um, and I think we got to stop trying to adhere to this healthy standard. We live in a society where health is wealth, but it doesn't mean it's fair. It shouldn't be. And everyone, including you, deserve that respect and that decency despite your health status. Um, so or despite how you present yourself, right. So like, go just and like still live. Like I think chronic illness can be really and mental health illness as well can be really, um, it's heavy. It's a heavy burden to carry. And we forget sometimes that, Hey, we still deserve laughter and we still deserve joy. And, you know, if there are moments where, you know, we're, we're not in pain, you know, run with it. If you can't, like you might be mm-hmm. tired. Like, <laughs> wipe the spoons, but if you can enjoy it in the moment, like do it. Like mm-hmm. I think the find pleasure, thing, whatever that means for you, whatever that means for you. And just, if you have the fortune, the good fortune of having a support system, even if it doesn't come in a traditional sense of like my husband or my wife or, you know, my family, find your tribe because it will take you a long way. If you've got to get online, find your social group or whatever, find your tribe because support really is necessary through this. Mm. Whatever you can get your support from, I know that, um, you know, it's a privilege to have insurance in this society and have access to therapy and all those things. But if you can use it, yeah, <laughs> use absolutely. It. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you also mentioned before we hit record about that idea of like being intimidated by some of the communities out there. And I think it's also going, there's no need to be intimidated by the communities that are out there. Just jump in. Yeah. Just everyone, like everyone wants you to be here. <laughs> right. I think when I, when I mentioned that intimidation to you, I think it was because in the beginning, because this has been, a, it's been like four years now, I didn't know anything, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's hard so, to be a student again when you're an adult. And you're looking and I'm seeing words thrown around like TPO, and, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, what kind of blood test to ask for? I like, couldn't agree more. Like, 
I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know this. Well, let me go Google this. Um, like it was just so much information. But, it but it's was, about becoming a student in a new way and being right. okay with that. And then pass the information along. Don't be greedy. Share it. <laughs> because you just don't know who doesn't know what could help them. I would also say be really mindful, though. There are some eager, eager beagles out there who will, like, they buy into every essential oil, every tea. Every yeah. Product. Use your good judgment. Use your judgment and discretion when you're making those choices. But just yeah. know that there's a wealth of information available to you. Mm. And there's a wealth of communities out there. I love that. Yeah. And one of them happens to be yours. Now, let's also get onto the last top three list. This one's my favorite. Top three things that give you unbridled joy. So things that like, despite like lifestyle changes you may have had to make to manage symptoms of your various illnesses, this can be guilty pleasures, secret indulgences, comfort activities, just three things that give you all the well, I'll tell you right now, sex is at the top of my list. Yes, and, girl. Yeah, I mean, quarantine has been great. <laughs> <laughs> For you, maybe. I'm living here alone. It's not so great over here. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm always thankful. I'm like, God must have known that I needed to be married. <laughs> I laugh because me and my husband are like, yeah, this, this hasn't been like this Long yeah. Oh, well, I guess we're going to have to uh, lock the we're door. Here, we're here now. Um, but I would also say um, creating and whatever that mm. means for me. I am a writer. So blogging, um, fashion is fun for me. Makeup. Um, you love your makeup. Makeup is, oh yeah. Like makeup is super therapeutic. I don't care what anybody says about it. I find watching makeup tutorials to be so calming. They, I, just the steps. Yeah. Like I can sit down at my little studio and start doing whatever I'm doing. And by the time I'm finished, I'm so relaxed and calm. It's a canvas. It's like, it's, it's just a, like drawing or painting. Right. So I'm like creating is like at the top of my list. I don't care what mm. I'm, I'm But creating. I like that sex was number one. <laughs> sex creating. What's number three? Sleep. Yeah. It brings me joy. Um, especially when I'm able to do it without, without struggling. Cause you know, the insomnia has been a little high for me, but sleep, because I always feel rejuvenated as long as I'm getting a restful sleep. So we'll couple We're that. We're in that CPAP. Wine. Yes. Wine. Ooh, wine. Yeah. Wine. Have a nice glass of wine. Yeah. And the CPAP puts me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's my kind of party too. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Can you tell everyone who's tuning in right now where they can find you so they can continue to follow your journey? So my main site is www.apyoungblog.com. And that is like literally the one-stop shop because you can shop um, my makeup on that site. You can also read blog articles. They're all categorized. So there's a tab for mental health, marriage, children, fashion. Everything's nice and neat for you. And of course, on all social media across all platforms, I'm APY blog on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Yeah, you guys, I'm over 30 and I have a TikTok. <laughs> I just joined recently. I joined since quarantine and I was like, all right, let's give it a try. Challenge yet. Yeah. I haven't done any challenges. <laughs> well, now you got to, you have to dive right in and give us a challenge. I know. Oh God. <laughs> we need to see the dance moves. I know it's true. I should, I really need to do it. And I've been ever since I interviewed, um, Jen Musumba, um, a couple months ago and she was like, Oh my God, you got to do the dances. I keep my daughter's been trying to convince me to, to do one of the dance challenges. And like, I'm, I'm just now getting comfortable with like 
my gait and my limp on camera. Mm. So I'm like, that's going to be my next thing. Like, I'm going to find a dance challenge that I can do. And I'm going to yeah. do it. Like, that's on my list. I but love yeah, that. Yeah. I think that's a great way to lean into that that body acceptance, too. Yeah. On every um, level. I think when we talk about body acceptance, I'm so glad you said that at every level. It's just, you know, sometimes I think we focus so much on the physical appearance, but I'm like, you really have to learn to adapt to your body as it is, and whatever that might mean, whether you are taking insulin or taking a medication. Um, because for a lot of people, just the popping of a pill can be a lot be triggering. Yeah, it can be very triggering, even if it's learning to be okay with the fact that I had a cupcake today. Like, you know, whatever the case may be. I ate waffles I, for breakfast, so. I just <laughs> want to share that my husband made an excellent breakfast yesterday, and it was waffles and scrambled eggs and chicken. Oh. I don't really what eat. What kind of five-star <laughs> hotel are you living in? <laughs> well, he's a cook. He <laughs> And so I got really lucky with that. But, mm. you know. I, you know, part of me was like, ah, I shouldn't be eating this because I'm supposed to be losing weight. But I was like, this is so good. But you also have to live your life. Like, that's the thing too, isn't it? It's like finding balance. And that can be right. really hard to do. It can. Um, if if you can find, body acceptance to me is so much more than, am I going to put on a crop top today? I probably mm. will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's bigger than that. Yeah. Um, because I don't want to be at war with my body. Mm. I already feel like my body has been at war with me. And I just need to be able to love my body through whatever it's going through right now. And that's the biggest takeaway I can give anybody is love yourself at all stages. Do not wait until you've reached some amazing status of your life. You deserve to be happy in your body, even if there's things you want to change. And I'm not the person who will tell you, well, don't lose weight. That's horrible. No, but don't make your love of your body contingent upon it fitting into some mold because you will never be happy you will always be able to find something wrong with your body because that's just the human body. So nurture your body the way we show compassion and nurture to your children, your mother or whoever, treat your body with the same compassion and grace because you're going to need it because the world is not so kind. So you need to be kind. To your I body. love that. I think that's so beautifully said and a beautiful place to wrap this up for today. Alicia, it has been such a joy speaking to you today. I, I have learned so much. I'm going to take so many <laughs> lessons straight to my heart. And I'm just so thrilled to have connected with you and to have really dug into all of these rich stories in your experience. And, and thank you so much for being willing to, to talk so openly about everything you've been through and, and remind us that we're not alone. Nope. Absolutely not. So whatever crazy you're feeling, trust me, somebody else out there. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's probably a blog about it. There is. There is. Just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alicia, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.